welcome to the CSBS podcast, the podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. In August, thousands of students traveled back to their college campuses amid a surge in coronavirus cases across the nation. Dorms opened, varsity athletics resumed, and Greek recruitment continued. These typical student activities, combined with what we know about the typical behaviors of college students, kindled the ideal coronavirus breeding ground. Facing a deadly pathogen and a lot of uncertainty, some colleges confronted large outbreaks, while others successfully kept the infection rates down. Cornell University happens to be one of the successful universities in managing the spread of COVID-19. This episode will investigate the story behind Cornell's success. I'll talk with Peter Frazier, who is Associate Professor at Cornell University and an expert in COVID-19 data modeling. We'll discuss Cornell's behavioral compact strategy and behavioral compliance with Cornell's rigorous health and safety protocols. We will conclude with several recommendations on what universities can do to effectively manage the spread of coronavirus on campus. Peter, thank you for joining us. Cornell has done an outstanding job, by, by most estimates, um, of keeping the infection rate for COVID-19 down over the last semester. Um, can you give us a quick overview of the main features of your testing program so our, our listeners can understand what you did in particular? Absolutely. Uh, happy to do that. We have, we have a, quite a few different aspects to our program, but I would say the, the most important aspect is we test all of our students twice a week. Um, in addition, we test, uh, we test all of our undergraduate students twice a week, all grad students once a week. And then we test all staff and faculty um, at a cadence that depends on how frequently they're on campus. Uh, yeah, and that, that's really important because it, uh, it catches infections that we wouldn't have otherwise seen and lets us uh, isolate people that are infectious uh, before they can infect other people. Interesting. So it's very, very test heavy um, in its approach. Um, do, are, uh, let's talk a little bit about the particulars of the testing. Um, so two questions. One, do people have a set schedule for testing? I mean, do you, do you, are you a Monday, Wednesday, Friday person or Tuesday, Thursday? Um, or was that like you can come to campus and you can test twice a week? We won't um, talk to you unless you don't test. What, what, what was the, the um, approach when it came to organizing testing? Yes, everybody has a set uh, collection of days of week where they get tested. I'm a I'm a Wednesday person. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so undergraduates, you know, would have, for example, you could be a, a a Monday Friday person or a Tuesday Saturday person. And the advantage of that is it's easy to remember for people. Right. We thought about more complicated kind of approaches where you know. We would want to test you once every five days if if you had a risk that was in between, uh, you know, where once every five days was appropriate. But then we thought about actually doing that in practice and said, boy, that'll be really complicated, hard for people to remember. So, yeah, everybody has a set collection of days of week. Interesting. Um, and just a little background on, on the test. So we, we, at Illinois, we have our saliva test. Do you, did you use a saliva test or did you do a different type of test? We do a different type of test. It's called interior narrates. So you go into the testing center and you get a swab and then you put the swab in the front part of your nose and they count to 10 uh, while you, you know, while you swab the inside of your nose. Okay. So it wasn't the one that, that explored the inner reaches of your cranium. It was the one that was um, more comfortable, but would make you sneeze. Um, exactly. And, and was yeah, there and a reason? We, Sorry, we, go ahead. We thought of, yeah, the the choice of, of anterior narrates was really important, we think, for having a successful semester. Those those nasal pharyngeal swabs that really go into the back <laughs> of your head and make you sneeze and make you feel all weird. Uh, those are believed to be a little bit more sensitive. So, you know, if you if you have COVID nineteen, uh, that test is a little bit more likely to pick it up. But it's a lot less comfortable for people to undergo. And so, since we're testing everybody so often. 
we felt that we needed to have a, a sampling method that somebody could tolerate, you know, that was going to be uh, something that people were going to be willing to do over and over and over again. Um, so when we did mathematical modeling in order to understand the effectiveness of different kinds of ways of preventing the spread of COVID on campus, we analyzed uh, having better sensitivity on the one hand from nasal pharyngeal swabs versus having higher compliance uh, with anterior nares. And we went ahead and, and went with anterior nares. Oh, excellent. So there, there is also, I assume, an assumption behind how you described the frequency of testing on the behavior of the targeted population. So you were testing your undergraduates twice a week, graduate students once a week, and the faculty and staff were um, somewhere less than that, I say. Um, and that had some assumptions built into it. Where did you get those assumptions from? And then how did you arrive at those numbers to, um, to guide what you did? Yes, assumptions are very important and were a really difficult aspect of setting all of this up. Over the summer, when we were designing the program that we were going to launch at Cornell, there was really a huge amount that we didn't know. And our approach was to, number one, to try to read the scientific literature in order to understand what was known. And there, you know, there was quite a bit that was known, but there was also quite a bit that was unknown. And so for Things that we didn't know, a chief one being, you know, are people going to be willing to be tested twice a week? We built mathematical models that made a variety of different assumptions. And then we ran those models in order to understand what would happen, paying special attention to what would happen in, uh, in scenarios where the assumptions uh, were, were pessimistic. Um, and what we tried to do was to build a strategy that had a variety of different layers of safety in place so that if some of our assumptions turned out to be um, on the pessimistic end of things, that we would still be okay. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we, we looked at test compliance as one of the things that we, we really didn't know what would happen because nobody had ever created a, a program for doing large-scale asymptomatic screening of undergraduate students, and, and we didn't know uh, how they would react. So uh, along those lines, in terms of compliance, how, um, how did you handle that? I mean, we can make the uh, request that people test um, on these schedules, but whether they do or not is, of course, another question. What did you do to um, incentivize or um, keep people on those schedules? Did they keep to those schedules? Um, and, and we'd be very curious to know. People did keep to the schedule. The test compliance for undergraduate students is over 95%. So that means wow. that for, you know, if you, if you look at a moment in time and you ask of the students who were scheduled to be tested on this day, what fraction of them got tested on that day or one day later? So, you know, throughout the whole semester, that number is, is over 95%. Why, why is it so high? Um, I think, Part of it is the policies that were put in place by student in campus life uh, here on campus, who I think have a really good understanding of students. They did a great job with messaging. The messaging was, was you know, was, was positive. Uh, was, you know, it was sort of like, um, we're all in this together. And, uh, you know, if, if we can, if we can, you know, pull together and do a couple of small things, uh, then it'll keep, it'll keep you safe. It'll keep your classmates safe. It will allow us to all continue, you know, to enjoy college as, you know, to the best that we can during this really difficult time. So it was sort of a, a um, you know, do it for your friends, uh, sort of a, a messaging campaign. Uh, in addition, we had something that was called the behavioral compact that all students had to sign in order to come and, and uh, have a residential semester. So that behavioral compact required students to be tested regularly. And there was a training program that went along with that. 
Another thing that we did was the athletic programs, the, um, those were paused during the first part of the fall semester. And so what that meant is that you had a substantial number of athletic, you know, coaches and, and uh, you know, training personnel who, you know, ordinarily would be helping, you know, train students to be good at sports. Um, so those people are, are really unique and talented people. They have a great rapport with students, students respect them. And they also have a really unique ability to get students to do stuff. Uh, so they were employed as behavioral monitors and they went around and if they saw somebody who wasn't wearing a mask in, in a way that only a, you know, in the way that only a football coach can do. <laughs> we'll, they barked we'll, at them. <laughs> they'll tell the kid to put the mask on. Uh, and, you know, and, and that student would typically do that. So I That's think that great. was a third thing that student and campus life did that was really innovative and effective. Okay. I want to unpack each of those sure. a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. But I, I, I failed to ask some like just basic questions. Like, um, did you open up completely, or it, was it a partial open up? And you know, how many classes did you have in, in place? Um, that's the first question. I have another one after that. So, what's what was that? Um, scene we like? opened up almost completely. Wow. the The fraction of students of undergraduate students returning was approximately eighty okay. percent. There were some students who couldn't return. Uh, with the most common reason being that the student was overseas and travel from that country was was um, was disallowed by the U.S. government. So, for example, we had a number of students in China yeah, who yeah. couldn't who couldn't return from China. But anyone who could get here was was allowed to come. Anyone who could get here and who was willing to sign the behavioral compact uh, and who could comply with New York State travel restrictions. That student was encouraged to come and was offered a, a place here in Ithaca. Uh, not all classes were in person. There were a number of classes that were, uh, you know, conducted virtually. So you did have students who were here in Ithaca living here, who's, for which all of their classes were online. So that's kind of a bummer. But I think, um, again, something like, of the students who were here in Ithaca, I think, you know, over three quarters of them had uh, at least one class uh, that was in person. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, the other question was, you know, what, what percentage of students came back? And, and so the number was 80% and they were all um, in the community there. And how would you characterize the Cornell community as in, in a broad brushstroke? Um, sure. Yeah. So Cornell, we have a a few different campuses, but the biggest campus is in Ithaca, New York. So Ithaca, New York is in, it's in Tompkins County. Tompkins County has about 100,000 residents. Okay. And, you know, Cornell students, staff and faculty altogether is, is about 30,000 people. So we're a pretty big fraction of the kind of, the, you know, the surrounding community. Ithaca is definitely a college town. And something that I, I think also helped us in encouraging student, uh, student compliance with especially travel restrictions is that Ithaca is what we call centrally isolated. <laughs> that's so so i never thought of that as a positive way of describing <laughs> places like champagne and ithaca <laughs> yeah so to get to you know it's four hours four and a half hours to new york city yeah, it's yeah. four hours to philadelphia you can go to toronto in about four hours so all big cities are you know kind of a substantial drive away and that helps us to um you know once you get here you're here and if we can keep prevalence in the student population low, then that, that really can protect people. And we don't have to deal as much with people traveling um, to other nearby areas, getting infected and then importing the infection back. Okay. Um, a few more questions about the details of the students. So um, if they came to town and they, and they tested um, and suddenly dropped off the radar screen. Did you, would you, what plans did you have in place for uh, the students who weren't compliant? Um, were they punished? Were they rewarded for, for complying? What were the, the programs that you had in place to, um, to incentivize the students to participate? Yeah, so we, 
kept track of uh, of student testing and uh, the first of all, the number of students who you know started getting tested and then vanished off the face of the earth was quite low. Um, the uh, in some cases, when for example, when a student was was unwilling to be quarantined or isolated, they would have a, a long and direct personal conversation with the medical director. Uh, who would explain to them, uh, who would explain to them why, you know, this is really important and you really need to do this. And she would, uh, yeah, get them to get them to quarantine or, or isolate. So yeah, those, because the, the amount of noncompliance was relatively small, we were able to handle the small number of students who, 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 you know, who weren't following, um, the the guidelines in you know on sort of a case-by-case basis okay so you, you didn't have to have a policy so to speak um, right to, to deal with non-compliance interesting okay i mean so the the policy is what's in the behavioral compact uh yeah. you know which which does provide the uh, you know it says that the administration can take fairly strong uh, administrative acts uh, um, action against students who who fail to comply but the, you know, what actually was done um, and the extent to which those, uh, you know, those policies, how they were implemented uh, was able to be done on a case-by-case basis. Interesting, okay. Um, can you give us some background on the, the compact um, that you had um, between yourselves and the students and where, where did that come from? What was the inspiration? What was the thinking in, in, in you know, hindsight now, at least at least halfway through the year, um, was it effective? Yeah, so that was developed by Student and Campus Life, by, uh, by council. Um, you know, and who are, who's uh, student campus life? I assume is kind of like the administration that has to do with students, or is that a student um, organization? Right. They that's the that's the organization within the administration that has to do with 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 students. Okay. You know, in, in in normal times, you know, most of their work is in making sure that housing is set up so that it's you know what students need, and um, and also making sure that you know kind of like on campus social activities are engaging and safe. And, um, and they also, you know, during normal times would deal with, uh, you know, in, in, in our modern times, there's been a number of um, issues having to do with uh, Greek life, you know, so student and campus life would need, would, would be the organization that would uh, um, kind of have those conversations. Yeah, and so during COVID, they have been the ones who are out in front working with students in order to find ways so that they can, you know, have an enjoyable and educational residential uh, semester, but also, you know, will be willing and um, see the reasons why it's important to comply with with these kinds of social distancing and masking and, and uh, being willing to be tested. And then if you get, if you're a close contact going into quarantine and if you test positive going into isolation, uh, it was that part of Cornell administration that developed the, the behavioral compact. And then also, yeah, with, with strong collaboration with, um, with legal. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there, there was, it was institutionally um, driven, so to speak, um, yes. from, the, from the good. And it had, it had uh, appropriate um, consequences if they, were, if they were condemned by legal, I suspect. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that even though we haven't had to enact those consequences uh, very often, I think having those in, having the ability to do that if necessary was really important. Um, so in other institutions, some of those subgroups that you identified um, as maybe uh, prone to not 
comply, um, haven't complied. And in your case, it seems that they did. Was there something unique in terms of this package, you know, the communication program that went in, the compact, and then the, the um, appropriate campus leaders enforcing things um, that convinced that those subgroups? Or did you still have subgroups that were, you know, partying and taking risks and not wearing masks and doing the things that we know lead to outbreaks? Um, I would say that, you know, people are people. And when you have a lot of people, there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be a spectrum of behavior. Uh, We've heard that. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's, I've found, you know, I found that that's generally true. And that that was true here as well. So yeah, by and large, I would say that our students behaved amazingly well. Um, better than I better than I had had anticipated, uh, just in terms of yeah social distancing. You know, not having there's a, a rule that you can't have social gatherings with more than ten people. Um, you know that you need to wear masks. That you um, you know all, all these kinds of things. And I think by and large our students did a great job, but they're but not perfect, right? You you can't uh, expect. Um, you know, you, you can't expect uh, 20,000 students to behave perfectly, to have all of them behave perfectly all the time. Uh, and I would say that when you, when you look at the data, um, the cases that we have seen, um, the, you know, the highest, the highest risk groups have indeed been um, uh, Greek life and then also varsity athletics. Um, you know, and overall, you know, most people in Greek life and most athletes have behaved well, but when we have seen um, sort of instances of transmission, and then when we've gone back and understood how did that transmission happen, uh, you know, in, in some cases, it's that it's just that whatever um, this person had compliant, you know, they, they traveled and they did everything right. Uh, and they said they were going to travel and that was approved. And then they got infected and came back and then infected their roommates. Um, that certainly is part of the transmission that we've seen, but then we also have seen, uh, some examples of students having gatherings that I'm sure were not, uh, within guidelines. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes you do that and everything's okay. And other times you do that and and you infect your friends. So that, that leads, so I had, uh, I had a question, um, generated from our experience, but now I'm curious, even more curious about, um, whether it's a moot point. So one of the big things for all of us, which you alluded to, is that you know, humans are humans. And one of the things about being human is we like to be around each other. Um, and yeah. you know, so for a lot of us, the problem with the pandemic is that any gathering you know, is a risk. Um, and I'm curious, in your case, it seems like you kept the outbreak at, at bay. Does that mean people were having social gatherings? And because you had kept control of the pandemic, they were able to do that or was it that they really were great for the whole semester they didn't have parties of more than 10 people and they wore masks at those parties which we know is not happening in most places um so i'm curious now is it was it one of those things where you just did so well that they could do what most people wanted to do or was it that they were really behaving well when they did get together reality was somewhere in between the the you know the number of social gatherings and the and the size of those social gatherings was was much less than what you would have in a normal you know in a normal semester, uh, but at the same time, uh, definitely people did have social gatherings, um, you know some of which were you know totally within the most of which were totally within the rules kind of small social gatherings. I, you know, I don't know whether people were wearing masks or not, but they, you know, but that didn't result in widespread transmission. So there was a period in, let's say kind of mid-September through early November, where I would say that, you know, by our best estimate, prevalence on campus was zero. The only cases that we saw were from people who traveled. And then in many cases, people who traveled, we would catch their infection right away before they infected anybody else. Uh, And in some other cases, you know, they would come and they would infect their roommate uh, and there would be, you know, maybe a cluster of two or three 
positives and, and then we and then we would catch that. Then there was a period, so with Halloween and then um, there, there was a there was a cluster associated with Greek life um, kind of in early to mid-November. Uh, and then the students went home or most students went home uh, with Thanksgiving break. So yeah, there, there was a real period there when it was very safe on campus. And we actually uh, um, relaxed some of the restrictions on sort of, um, you know, on, on campus life. So for example, athletics were shut down at the beginning of the semester. And then when we got through sort of the initial set of cases that were caused by, um, you know, uh, positives that were imported from travel and then also uh, clusters that were, in, were initiated by those positive cases. Once we, you know, captured and controlled all, all of, the, all of the, the positive cases from that early period, yeah, then, then a decision was made to allow some athletic activities um, to, to happen. And so, yeah, there, there was a, a, a really great period where, where we, where we were able to, um, you know, try to, try to allow students to have more and more uh, social contact, uh, you know, what was, what college is supposed to be about. Yes. Um, did, just to clarify, did you do anything proactive? I mean, we, for example, had movie nights in the football stadium when, when it was warm enough. Um, were you putting on programs like that also for the students or was, was yeah, it? Yeah, student and campus life did a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, they also did a lot of stuff early on in the pandemic when students were arriving uh, where they would or they organized a great many activities for that could be done virtually. Uh, okay. in order to make it easier for students when they were arriving, especially because in New York State, uh, we had a rule and still have a rule that when you, um, there's, a, there's a list maintained by state government, which is a, a list of states with high prevalence. And if you come to New York State from one of those states, then you need to quarantine um, for, for a period of time. And so there were a large number of students who had to, you know, who underwent this, uh, travel quarantine. Okay. Um, it, another clarification question, but it's kind of emerging from the way at least you're talking about um, the program. Sounds to me like you had um, really good tracking. Um, like you knew where your students had traveled to, you knew when they come back, you knew where, I mean, so one question, of course, you've got on campus, you know, you've got students in the dorms, you've got off campus and off campus can happen, you know, now with, you know, of course, Zoom, you could be almost anywhere. Sound, the way you're talking makes it sound to me like you kind of knew where everybody was. Is that the case or was, is that my uh, projecting? <laughs> um, we, we had a pretty good idea, definitely not a perfect idea, uh, a lot of the idea about where our students were depended on, you know, uh, surveys that we did, uh, you know, so, so for example, when a student came to campus in the fall, there was a, a checklist that we gave them that asked them, you know, when are you arriving? Where are you arriving from? Uh, you know, do you have uh, housing that's compliant with, with New York state law? You know, those, and, you know, by and large, I think students responded uh, accurately on those checklists, you know, not in all cases, but in, in most cases. For the travel during the semester, we have a system where a student, um, you know, they're being, undergraduate students are being tested twice a week. So if you want to go so, and, and many students are being, one of their test days is a weekend. So that means that if you're going to travel somewhere, especially if you have an in-person class, if you're going to travel somewhere, you probably need to skip a test. So we have a process in place whereby you can request a, an exemption from a test on a particular date. So that's how we have a reasonably good idea of travel. We can also, after the fact, understand you know, how many students are traveling and then of those students that are traveling, how many of them are, are reporting accurately about that on the on the um, test exemption checklist? And we get that from interviews that happen through through contact tracing. 
be, you know, because we don't have that many positive cases, we're able to do a really detailed job in, you know, in interviewing um, positive cases. And we have a really great collaboration with the public health department here. You know, they have, they have the, you know, the, the authority and the responsibility to do contact tracing, but, um, but our uh, Cornell health, you know, the, the, you know, student health services here on campus, they have a, a partnership with, with the Tompkins County public health department where they will, um, you know, be involved in the, in the contact tracing. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So through that, we can understand, you know, especially for the highest risk students who are the ones that are showing up in, you know, in, in contact traces, we can understand, you know, where were you? Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it is possible for a student to lie in those kinds of interviews, but it's much harder uh, to do so than, you know, than, than on a survey. And so from that, we understand that those surveys are, you know, are fairly accurate. Fascinating. That, well, it's that, that comforting as a social scientist here. Somebody say that those surveys are accurate, but I'm not going to necessarily. I, I'll I'll take some solace in your comment, but <laughs> I don't know how far far and wide I generalize it. Um, like in our, in our case, um, we had a very similar re- a positive relationship with the local public health, but they handled the contact tracing, for example. Um, so it's it's interesting that you ha- actually handled that at the school level. Did that? lead to a different way of, of operationalizing it? Did you have more people, for example? And, and uh, was the, I assume it was be better received if a student called you and said, hey, I just want to tell you, you got, you tested positive. Um, but um, I was curious how that changed things for you. Yeah, it, uh, I'll say also that it's, it didn't start that way. So at the beginning of the semester, the county health department handled all the contact tracing and, you know, so they would make the phone call and say, you know, hey, you know, you've, you've tested positive and why don't you tell me about, you know, your recent, uh, you know, your recent contact. Uh, then at some point during the middle of the semester, the, you know, just we, we have a, the staffing that we have associated with student health is really good. And, you know, and, and the nurses who work in the student health services are, you know, they're, they're great. Um, and so you can think of it as like the, the health department still has the authority to do contact tracing, but they, they delegate some of that, um, they delegate some of that work to employees of the, uh, of student health services. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's still a close collaboration where, you know, essentially, you, you, and, they're, and they're entering uh, contact tracing details into the IT system used by the health department. Um, and so what that enabled us to do was, number one, to take some of the burden off of that county health department in order to allow them to focus their efforts on uh, contact tracing in the community. Um, you know, for, for people who are not students, uh, for people who are not students. Um, second one, yeah, just to ensure that we had a lot of detail about our student cases and we did a really, uh, you know, really thorough job of contact tracing, not that the health department doesn't do a thorough job, but just, you know, allows us to really, um, uh, really understand that really well. And then to make sure that that was really well integrated with, uh, the rest of our the rest of our efforts, and also you know for students who did not want to quarantine or for students who did not want to isolate, um, it allowed us to uh, you know to again have the medical director uh, talk to students individually and explain to them, hey, you really you really got to do this. It's good to have that authority figure. Um, you you also had something unique, which was the daily check in. Um, mm. As part of the, as part of the compact, right? That they had to tell um, you folks whether they were having any symptoms, um, whether they've been exposed. Correct? Is that what what the the listing did? That's I mean, we had the option, for example, at the at our university with an app that we could say what we were suffering from, um, but it was totally voluntary. In your case, you actually required people every day to to check in and say these are my symptoms. Is that the case? That's exactly right. Yes, that was part of the behavioral compact. It's called the daily check. And there's a collection of questions. It's exactly like you described. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you, you need to complete that. You need to complete that every day. 
as an undergraduate and you need to complete it before coming on campus. Uh, and then if you, if you, um, you know, for example, if you check the box that says that you have symptoms, then you'll get a call from Cornell Health who will, you know, say, hey, tell me about your symptoms and we'll help uh, figure out figure out what to do. So, yeah, that's another way that we can keep track of students and make sure that we're, you know, apprised of, uh, you know, of any uh, any issues that might be happening. So so two follow up questions. I mean, some for some institutions, some communities, testing is is out of reach because it's it's not cheap um, and you can't afford it. I've seen it said in some cases that doing just that simple act, recording your symptoms on a regular basis, might be enough to control an outbreak. Did was it a useful tool for you? Did was it an adjunct to the testing that caught people that um, didn't get caught by your your net? Um, and um, and then how the heck did you get people to comply? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it definitely was a useful tool. Uh, I would say that it, yes, it served as a, as a, you know, as a prompt for somebody, for example, who has a sore throat or who, you know, isn't feeling all that well to, you know, to push them over that, you know, like small mental threshold required in order to, uh, in order to, you know, get in contact with health, health personnel. I think that if, you know, if a student instead needed to kind of on their own call Cornell Health and say, hey, I have a sore throat, I think that the number of people who would have done that would have been much, much, much smaller. So, yeah, it was imp- it was definitely important from that regard. It was also important from the perspective of students, uh, like education, educational uh, sort of just what policies, what what the policies are. Uh, and also sometimes, even though I think we did a really good job collectively between student health services and public health department of doing contact tracing, it would also find instances where someone would would say, oh, you know, I have a friend who tested, you know, they texted me and they said that they tested positive. I haven't gotten a call from anybody, but on the on the daily check where it says, you know, um, have you been in contact with anyone who's been diagnosed with COVID? I check yes on that. Um, and then so that would allow us to kind of identify things that that either had been missed in contact tracing interviews or just contact tracing interviews that hadn't happened yet. So yeah, it was a it was a it was a really important tool. I would say that on its own, I don't really know uh, whether that on its own would have been sufficient in order to control, you know, to get us to the point where we would have avoided sort of large clusters on campus. I think it, you know, it definitely would have helped, but you know, the way, at least the way that I think about epidemic growth is like, there's, there's a, there's a phase change where when you, uh, if you have transmission, that's just high enough, that's when you get, you know, really big clusters. uh, And if, you know, and if you can push that transmission just below that threshold, that's where the, the clusters die out. And I don't know, and I think it would depend on the population, um, whether a strategy like that on its own w- would be sufficient. We think of the asymptomatic screening as, as being really important for, um, for ensuring uh, epidemic control. Interesting. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you didn't have any super spreader events um, throughout the semester by, by our definitions where hundreds of people were subsequently infected. No. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, we did we did have some events where, you know, there there was a there were a substantial number of people infected. And we do see over dispersion, you know, in the in the infections that happened, where um, basically when you look at for a given positive case, how many other people did that positive case infect? Mm-hmm. Most people infect zero other people. And then there's a small number of people who might infect, you know, five or, or 10 additional people. But we didn't see any events yet with, you know, with hundreds of positive cases. Interesting. So it sounds to me like your daily check-in was kind of a, instead of being a big brother-esque thing, it was more of um, an exchange. Is that the right way to think about it? That people were, it was still, it was a way you communicated to everybody and the way they felt like they were participating by communicating back with it, would that be a fair way of capturing the Yeah, the I think that's fair. It? I think that's fair. I think of it as like uh 
You know, it's like a daily reminder. It's just like a small part of your day um, as a person. And, you know, it's just sort of reminding you, hey, like (laughs) we have a public health crisis going on. And, um, you know, there's just a small number of things that, you know, that you should keep in mind. And if any one of these things is a, you know, is is cropping up in your life, just let us know and, and we'll reach out to you. So, and the other thing that impressed me about um, your communication is you've got a, a very informative dashboard, for example, um, which tells every, anybody who wants to look um, a lot of information about who is being tested, who's getting sick. So it seems to me like, like you have a, a really open approach in some respects to um, communicating with your, your, your people, whether they be students or faculty and staff. Again, it seems, is, is that a fair way of characterizing it? Um, is, is that in your mind a unique feature to Cornell and the way you communicate with everybody? And where did that come from? <laughs> um, we do think of it as an important aspect of what we're doing. You know, we think that communication uh, with, you know, with a variety of different stakeholders is really important, right? So students, staff, faculty, and then for us, because Ithaca is a college town, the the community, right? Mm-hmm. When we were planning for the semester during the summer, a big part of the, the mathematical modeling that I was doing was in uh, trying to be as transparent as possible. We prepared a number of reports that were really, really detailed and long, but that, you know, talked through all of the assumptions that we were making, showed graphs of different scenarios and what might happen, tried to give people a sense for, um, you know, how to think about dis- different aspects of risk. And um, yeah, at, at first that was, f- at first we reached out to um, to faculty and got, uh, a great many comments um, from them on the plan. Some of some of whom, you know, are sort of experts in epidemiology, both at Cornell and uh, at other institutions, and others who were just, you know, you know, people people who were stakeholders because they were gonna. Uh, they you were, were risking all of our lives, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, we started out and we. Um, we had a number of town halls and we, we we have a faculty senate at Cornell. So I presented at the faculty senate a couple of different times talking about, for example, how, yes, there were a great many things that we didn't know about transmission among undergraduates, but how as long as things were not, you know, and I sort of articulated a window of transmission rates that we would be able to handle with a given test frequency. We, we started out and we reached out to faculty. Then we reached out to, uh, to staff uh, through a larger set of town halls and then to the broader community, prepared a report um, uh, for one of the, the New York State Assemblywoman who represents our district and had did a number of interviews with local media uh, about what we thought might happen and, and how we would handle certain scenarios and how we were, you know, putting measures in place in order to protect people. So that kind of transparency was really important during the planning process. And that was something that we wanted to carry forward with our dashboard. I don't think that we're unique in doing that. I, I do think that quite a number of schools, you know, have good dashboards that uh, provide a fair amount of information. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, generally good practice to try to uh, give visibility into what's happening while at the same time, you know, respecting privacy. Right. Um, So you're not mentioning, uh, let's say, a a feature that we have um, in our community, which is the town and gown separation. So I'm curious. I mean, we had it in a couple of different ways. I mean, culturally, um, there's a, a... there is some of uh, something of a divide in terms of how the the community surrounding us views us and how we view them, um, and then you know, fact of the matter is, towards the end of our semester, we had more of an outbreak coming to us um, than we were generating out um, because the community itself had an outbreak. I was curious whether you had that kind of issue um, in Ithaca and and how you handled it, or if you didn't have it at all. Yes, there is definitely a you know the variety of different parts to the community here. 
Um, you know, a lot of people who live in Ithaca, you know, work at Cornell, right. um, but many people don't. Um, and I would say that there was, there was substantial concern. I, they were, people were of two minds, I found over the summer. Some people were extremely concerned about the risks associated with bringing students back. Um, you know, were generally, generally afraid. Uh, and then other people, I think, were afraid for the economic consequences of what would happen right. if we were to choose not to open. Yeah. I Ithaca College, um, which is also in Ithaca, chose to go to virtual instruction um, for the bulk of the fall semester. And they have had some fairly severe uh, financial issues, which is affecting, right. affecting employment in the town. And I think that if we, if Cornell had also uh, chosen to go with virtual instruction, um, then, uh, you know, I think employment situation um, would be substantially worse. And a number of people who lived in the community felt that, you know, it would be reasonably safe if we were to bring students back and were more fearful uh, of, the, of the consequences of, you know, widespread unemployment um, and layoffs from the major employer in the area. You know, and you can appreciate those, those two different things are both things to be feared. Uh, and so it created very high emotions um, in, yeah, over the summer. And so, yeah, we, we just tried to communicate about how, we tried to communicate and we tried to move those, those are real concerns. And the best way to address those concerns is by careful planning and science and analysis, you know, and emotion I think is helpful. It gets you started and it gets you to focus on some things, but then at a certain point in time, you need to buckle down and, and really, um, you know, get some Excel spreadsheets out. Uh, <laughs> uh, I tell so, my family that all the time. And <laughs> Just don't seem to appreciate it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Bring the Excel spreadsheet out. <laughs> we'll start by yelling and then we'll move to Excel And then we'll move to the Excel spreadsheets. This, I think, we could write a book. <laughs> we I could write a book. <laughs> this could be good. <laughs> the Excel spreadsheet intervention for <laughs> conflict. Um, so I, uh, sorry, one, other thing you, one other thing you mentioned was that towards the end, uh, you saw that cases, there were more cases coming into the university um, than going the other way. We saw, yeah, so during the semester, uh, we didn't see any transmission from the university into the greater community. But then from perhaps Thanksgiving onward, we've been seeing a great number of cases, mostly in staff, right. who get infected at home or from social gatherings, you know, away from work especially not so much in Tompkins County, but in the surrounding counties where a great many staff live. And yeah, and it's, um, it's something that we're, we're quite concerned about. There's a limit to how much we can really do, you know, because it's, it's someone who's getting infected at home. And then, you know, yes. we happen to find it in the surveillance testing that we're doing. So there's been communication done with staff about, you know, hey, this is really like dangerous and you need, you, you know, keep yourself safe and here are ways to keep yourself safe. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a rising concern that we have. Yeah. Um, I've, I've kept you for a long time and I greatly appreciate um, the, all the information and your, your willingness to, to uh, help us here. So I, I just want to finish up with a big you know, question. Um, if you had two or three recommendations for other universities um, who are going to be opening up either in part or in whole in the spring um, from your experience, what would you, what would you tell them to do? I think the number one thing would be if you have the ability to do an asymptomatic screening program, then do that. Not every university has the capability to be able to do it. it you know, it is expensive. But at the same time, um, you know, it really offers a, a substantial amount of safety. Something that we didn't talk about is how we're using pooled testing in order to make that less expensive. So that, I think that would be my first recommendation. If that's not an option, then 
you really need to invest in contact tracing, having measures in place like this behavioral compact that give you the ability to, uh, you know, to bring enforcement to bear. If, if you can ensure compliance and you can contact trace really quickly and effectively and you have the staffing in order to be able to do that and the IT in order to be able to do that and the integration with public health, that can go a long way towards controlling epidemics. And, and the third thing is that what we've seen is that the greatest risk Greatest risks are from off-campus activity associated with social gatherings and living together, especially uh, in Greek life and um, among people associated with varsity athletics. If you can bring to bear your resources in order to keep those individuals safe uh, and to prevent transmission in those subpopulations, then I think that's a really big bang for buck. Something that we've done that's really helped with that a lot is something called adaptive testing. Whenever, a, uh, whenever for example, someone living in a fraternity or a sorority house tests positive, we don't wait for the contact tracing results. We just test the whole house. And that's found, that's found a lot of positive cases. And I think that even if you didn't have a widespread asymptomatic screening program, uh, I think that there are many, you know, the, probably the majority of colleges and universities would have the resources to be able to uh, be able to do that. So, yeah, those would be three things that I would recommend um, for this. Point. Excellent. Excellent recommendations. Um, Dr. Frazier, I greatly appreciate your time and your expertise um, and your willingness to tell us about your experiences at Cornell. Um, I hope um, that our listeners find it useful, and I hope that the knowledge that you've accumulated gets passed down because this seems to be an important experience for all of us. Um, thank you for your time. We greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for investigating uh, a really important set of issues, and I wish everybody uh, best of luck in the spring. <laughs>